0: As we look tonight at 1 uh, at Kings and as we continue our journey through the history of Israel, here's what that history depicts. You have a man after God's own heart whom God used to bring a nation together, to work incredible works for him. A picture of, of a man who is utterly and totally committed, not perfect man, not a man without sin, not a man without struggles, but a man for whom God matters. He's in the foremost of his thoughts. When he's, when he's caught in sin, the man after God's own heart repents. God forgives. There's consequences, like there are consequences for anybody who sins, and those consequences are there. But it doesn't negate the grace of God poured out on a life of a man after God's own heart. That man passes a kingdom united to his son. His son, the scriptures tell us, was beloved of God. God loved him. So when he was a child, God came to him and gave him a blank check and said, Anything you want, ask of me and I'll give it to you. So Solomon said, Give me wisdom to lead your people. So the Lord gave it to him. But he said, Since you didn't ask... For wealth, and you didn't ask for peace, and you didn't ask uh, uh, for the kingdom to the borders to be established and, and, and grown. I'm gonna do all that too. And so Solomon dedicated himself to the, to the concept of building God a house, a place of worship where people could come, and, and that was his central focus. His father's great desire was to build God a house, and so Solomon is gonna see it done. And then he comes to the conclusion of all that effort and work, but it's not time to go home. His life's not over, his ministry's not finished, so what does God want of him? He begins to work on his, on his palace. He, he's got a humongous force of laborers that are, that are, are willing to submit themselves to slavery to build This great kingdom and so he builds his palace and so he builds stables and so he begins to make deals with Egypt and he gathers for himself an incredible cavalry, an incredible stable of horses. In fact, it requires several cities to be built just to house the horses that he has. And as he's amassing his kingdom and in all his wisdom, as he's going out and doing these things that seem best to him. It echoes to me the very thing he would write when he said, there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it's a way of death. seemed right to have all those horses. It seemed right to multiply gold. It seemed right to multiply wives. But each one of those was a step away from the plan God had for his life. No matter how wise infinitely more understanding than you or i yet still frail still controlled by a flesh that all the wisdom all the earthly wisdom in the world even i don't know perhaps some of the heavenly wisdom that god poured out on him wasn't able to overcome the desires of his flesh And he began to disobey God. In the end, prior to reading about Solomon's death, it said his heart was turned away from God. In the beginning, much beloved. In the beginning, promise. In the beginning, blessing. In the beginning, all the incredible wisdom poured out on him. He he writes for us three books we still have in the Bible. We still read, we still study, we still seek the wisdom of Solomon. But in the end... His heart was turned away from God. He was pulled down by the simple, the simple concept that gets us to. And every king that would follow him. God told every one of the kings the same thing he tells us. If you will keep my commandments. Then I will bless you. I will establish your kingdom. I'll be with you, Solomon coming to the end of his reign, the Lord speaks to a man called Jeroboam. Jeroboam was one of the guys the officers set over this in huge labor force that was building all of Solomon's palaces and cities and stables and he had a, a kind of had a a, a little uh, revolt against Solomon and had had fleed to uh, Egypt, and a prophet speaks to him and says, "Listen, and he tears up his this cloak into ten pieces. And he says, just as I torn up this, this, this uh, a cloak into ten pieces, the Lord is going to divide the kingdom, and He's going to give you ten parts. And if you will follow Him, like David did, not perfect, but that God was the forefront, then He will establish the kingdom through you later on Solomon dies Rehoboam his son comes into power Jeroboam comes back and he says to Rehoboam listen if you lighten the yoke of your father and let all us workers go home we will follow you all the days of your life Rehoboam sought counsel and the older wise men and his counsel told him let him go but the younger guy said no you make them stay you make them, you show them that you're a greater king than your father Solomon So that's what he does. And so Jeroboam says, forget it. What do we have to do with you? And he took ten nations. Ten nations or ten tribes go north. Now when we speak of that, I want you to understand it like this. The ten heads of the tribe or the the essence of the tribe. In each division, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, you have representatives of all twelve tribes. Don't don't believe like if if the if when our nation was divided north and south, if you believe that everybody who was in the north believed in what the north was about, and everybody who was in the south believed what the south was about, you are mistaken. You need to look at history. There were southerners who didn't like what was going on in the south, and where did they go? North. And there were northerners who didn't like what was going on in the north, and where did they go? South. It was still brother against brother. But you have representatives on each side. And the same thing is true of the two kingdoms in Israel. The northern kingdom is always going to be called Israel, and it's going to be referred to as ten tribes. And the southern kingdom is always going to be called Judah, and it will be referred to as two tribes. And in kings, things get a little confusing because we have a lot of different kings at the same time. And we have to know, who are they, north or south? Jeroboam takes his people north. And as he's up there, he begins to think to himself. Now listen, God promised him, if you follow my statutes, if you, if you keep my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. And I guess I, I want to back up and talk a little bit about that concept. Keeping. The way we translate that in our mind is performance. That's, it's not performance-based. If it was performance-based, David failed, and he would never have been called a man after God's own heart. It's not performance based, it's the attitude of the heart that says, I will keep, I will treasure, I cling to the commandments of God, I hold fast to God's word, that that's important to me. And when I recognize that I've gone away or gotten fallen off track of what God's word says, I will, this little word, repent. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The man after God's own heart understands that concept of repentance and forgiveness. Jeroboam, he begins to look at the people and he rubs his chin. Now, the southern kingdom had a very prominent city as the central point of the southern kingdom. That prominent city, you know the name of it, is still a prominent city in the Middle East today. It's called Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? Solomon's temple. Which means that's a central place of worship for the entire nation. But now the nation has been divided in half. And Jeroboam, rather than trusting God, and keeping to God's commandments, decides, if I allow my people to go to Jerusalem and worship, they'll stay there and they won't come back. So, he developed... Uh, a syncretic religion, that means he blended Judaism and the Canaanite pagan religions of Baal, the areas surrounding Israel, into one. He made two gold calves, or golden bowls. And he placed one in Dan, which was far to the north, and, and, and one in uh, Shechem down in the south. And he said that these are the foundations of the feet of Yahweh, one foot way up there in the north, one foot way down here in the south, big invisible monotheistic God, but only thing the people could see was the golden bulls. It goes still against anything God said, and he began to encourage them to worship. Now that worship still finds itself active today in a mount called Gerizim, in a place called Samaria. And at the time of Christ, Jesus, the, the, he's going to tell his disciples, I need to go to Samaria. And the disciples are thinking, nobody goes to Samaria. Because in Samaria, this mixture of religion is still practiced. The people mixed, the religion was mixed, and it has its foundation with Jeroboam. So Jeroboam does it. Well, the Levites, the Bible tells us in Chronicles, the Levites that were in the north... They look around and they think, oh my gosh, what's he doing? He's he's twisted the worship. And so the Levites, they don't want to be a part of it. The priesthood doesn't want to be a part of it. So Jeroboam appoints priests from anybody. If You want to be a priest? You're a priest. You want to be a priest? You're a priest. And they began serving. So the Levites left the northern kingdom and went south. And when the Levites left the northern kingdom and went south, they took with them... The the presence of, of God, the salt, the light, the ability to witness. If we take the witness for Christ out of the world, then what is there in the world to shine the light of Christ anymore? They pulled to the south. So as a result, in the northern kingdom, there will never be a good king. There will never be a return to the worship of of the Lord. There will be the earliest captivity of the two divisions. We'll see that tonight as we look at the prophecy tonight. We last week we were or last time we were together we talked about the old uh, uh, the man of God, unnamed prophet called of God to go and give a message to Jeroboam. That message is, you have disobeyed what God said to you, so he's going to pull the nation away from you, just like he took it away from the line of David. So the word has come to him. God's going to begin speaking through his prophets. At this point in the kingdom, we're going to see a lot more work with prophets. We'll, we'll recognize it as we go through uh, 1st and 2nd Kings with Elijah and Elisha. It also is going to work around the same time as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. All those guys are ministering the same period of time, leading into the captivity of the, of the southern kingdom. So as we look tonight, and as we begin to take a look at chapter 14, right after that prophet has, has brought his word, told uh, uh, Jeroboam what would happen, then that prophet disobeyed what God told him and he was uh, killed by a lion. These things all happen and the scripture tells at the end, if we look at the end of, uh, of chapter 13, we pick it up in about verse 33, it says, Now after this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil, but again he made priests of every class of people for the high places. Whoever he wished, he consecrated him and they became one of the priests of the high places. This thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam made his choice, made his decision. Even hearing the word of God from a prophet, miracles took place, altars shaken, crumbles in front of him. You you see God do incredible things. Jeroboam still will not turn. Why? It tells us in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we're told that light came to the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. The Scripture tells us that this is a condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. You're already condemned. And this is your condemnation. Light came, but you love the dark. If you'd like to do word studies, I encourage you, look at that word love. It is the word agapeo. Men loved the dark. The same way God loves, that's how men love the darkness. That's the condemnation. That's where Jeroboam is. He loves the dark. He loves the dark. So the judgment of God is going to fall. Now, it says in verse, or chapter 14, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. So shortly after this time, Jeroboam's son gets sick. So Jeroboam said to his wife, please arise, disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there who told me that I would be king over this people. So he's going to send his wife to seek out the, the counsel of an old blind prophet. Now apparently Jeroboam doesn't know the prophet's blind, or he wouldn't have his wife wear a disguise. And apparently Jeroboam doesn't understand the power of God, or he wouldn't have his wife wear a disguise. You can't hide yourself from the eyes of God. But another part of the reason why Jeroboam's wife is, is going to wear a disguise because she's going into enemy territory. The northern, ter- the northern nation and the southern nation are fighting each other. So she's going to wear a disguise as if they knew Jeroboam's wife was walking through town, the southern kingdom would snatch her up. And so, she's going to wear a disguise and go to see his prophet. And it's interesting because I want you to see the things that Jeroboam has her bring to the prophet. These are not a, it's not a lavish gift by any stretch of the imagination, but it is full of meaning. He says, also take with you ten loaves. And you remember I told you when Ahijah came to Jeroboam and told him, he tore up this garment into ten pieces and said to him, hey... These ten nations are going to be yours. Now, as he goes to him, he says, take him as a reminder. Take him these ten loaves, ten loaves, some little cakes. The, the little cakes are like a, a um, almost like cupcakes for, for small children. It's something for kids. He brings, um, little cakes and a jar of honey. And he says, go to him and tell him and, uh, and he will tell you what will become of the child. So he takes as if to, to remind Ahijah, remember the ten tribes God gave me. And, and here are these little cakes. We're, we're talking about a small child and, and, and he's sick and there's children here in the northern kingdom. It's, 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 I think, full of all kind of, uh, of other concepts that Jeroboam is bringing to Ahijah. But, but, you see, all those things would matter, should have mattered to Jeroboam. You understand, it should have mattered to him. But it didn't matter to him. He didn't care about his children. If he cared about his children, he wouldn't have started a a false religious system that he himself knew absolutely was false just in order to control the people. Now, does that ever happen in history? Has there ever been religious systems that have been developed by the leaders of nations to control the people? Sure there has. It's called the emperor worship, Caesar worship in Rome. And that's not because they invented it. That's something that, that happens... Uh, uh, around the world and other nations and a, a means to control people that's why later on it would be said that religion is the opiate of the masses because through the religion I can control the people the Bible tells in the book of Revelation is that ever going to happen again? sure the Bible tells that there's going to be a world ruler who will cause people to worship the beast same concept an, a, a, an idea a concept of control over to people. Same thing that Jeremiah has chosen to do in this place. Well, Jeroboam's wife did, uh, did so. She arose and went to Shiloh. And she came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord said to Ahijah, here is the wife of Jeroboam, coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, and it will be, when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. So Ahijah who can't see, the Lord brings a prophetic word to Ahijah and tells him, Hey, Jeroboam's wife is on her way to meet you. She's going to be, pretend to be somebody else. She's going to ask you about her son and this is what I want you to tell her. So the Lord tells Ahijah about it before she ever gets there. Before she's ever crossed the threshold, he is already aware. The Lord gave direction to Ahijah. When the Lord gave direction to Ahijah, does he have a choice? Sure he does. He has a choice whether or not to obey the word, to keep his word, to value his word, or to do whatever he wants or whatever he thinks is right. Every human being on the face of the earth is going to be faced with those same choices every single morning. Will you wake up in the morning and say, I will be God's champion today. I will carry the banner for the Lord today. I'm going to be the example that I need to be today. We all are faced with it. So as we look at the study and we read about these kings and the dumb things they do and the decisions they make and the judgments that come, don't look at it from some high horse looking down on these guys as though we aren't faced with the same decisions and we don't make the same bad decisions in our lives the lord is still looking today for people who will stand in the gap for him he's still looking book of ezekiel says the lord looked to and fro for someone to stand in the gap and he found none ezekiel is writing about a hundred years after this period of time So we see these things taking place and creating a problem there in the nation of Israel, even as it creates a problem for us. Well, in verse 6 it says, So it was, when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Now, I wonder what that must have been like for her. For one thing, she's come to the house of the prophet, and she's going to recognize he's blind. When the scripture says his eyes were glazed, it means the cataracts were so thick on his eyes that his eyes just looked gray. That You could look at him and tell he cannot see. But as she comes walking through the door, and at the same time in her mind, she's recognizing the prophet's blind. I'm good to go. Everything's great. Ahijah the prophet welcomes her. By name. Oh hey, God told me you were coming. You can't disguise yourself, even from a blind man, especially the blind prophet of God. So she comes in, and he says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Now, Ahijah wasn't sent anywhere, was he? <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that God has given me revelation for you, is what Ahijah is saying. You have come to me, but in reality, God has sent me to you. You think you've come here to find out about your son, but in reality, God has brought you to this place so that you can hear this word, this judgment. Similar to the judgment that her husband received from a prophet just a chapter earlier. The Bible tells us that in the last days... For the battle of Armageddon, that God will put hooks in their jaws and gather the armies together against Israel. The, the imagery that God is using in that is very similar to what's happening here. All the people who come to Armageddon will make their own choice to go. To do battle against Israel. But in reality, they're coming because God said it. Just like Jeroboam's wife is being drawn She thinks she's made the choice to find out about her son, but she's come because God wants to reveal to her this prophecy, this understanding about where life and rebellion against God ultimately leads. And so he has brought her to this place. I have come to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, And made you ruler over my people Israel. And tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments. Who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. As we look at the beginning of that there's several things that we want to glean. One of those things being the concept that we talk about over and over again. And that is who raises up the king. God does. We'll see that established a little later when the Lord turns his attention from Jeroboam to Rehoboam and talk to the southern kingdom. But ultimately, the nation receives the king she deserves based on where she is at spiritually. And the the king that she receives, the events that occur in that kingdom are to lead her people into reliance upon God. As the Lord begins to take his hand of protection off. To see that the people would call upon the name of the Lord. Now the southern kingdom is going to experience that. The northern kingdom is never going to. They're never going to ask. They're never going to turn. They're going to turn their back. And they're going to keep going. All the way to captivity. Into Assyria. So as she comes... He says first that, that it is he, the Lord God, who raised Jeroboam up. Wasn't some fancy thing Jeroboam did, it was something that God did. And the next thing he said is he gives a little clue about what God is looking for in godly leadership. And that godly leadership is that what David, his servant David, had. Who did what? Who kept my commandments. i shared before that word keep. One of the best ways to look at that is the word treasured. Who treasured my commandments. He clings to them. He, he values them. He, he keeps them in a safe place. He He's constantly referring to them. They're important to him. Oh, for crying out loud, we read the Psalms still today, don't we? Many of those penned to us by his servant David. Given to us in that place. So he says, not only this, he treasured my commandments, but what else? He followed me with all his heart to do... Only what was right in my eyes. Now it doesn't mean he did only what was right in God's eyes. We know David's story. But his heart was set to him. It has been said that in order to follow the Lord, you have to let go of the world with both hands and put both hands on him. But so often, so many of us try to put one hand on him and one hand on the world. When Jesus came, didn't he tell us that that's not possible? Didn't he say a man cannot serve both God and mammon? Mammon, not, not even necessarily being the concept of money, just the concept of the world, just the concept of, of something else. I'm either all in, or I'm not in at all. And it's so important, it's so vital for us to understand. There is no fear, there's nothing to fear in being all in with God. I, I, uh, I was blessed this last week, had an opportunity to watch some stuff uh, by Francis Chan. Francis Chan's a man I respect. I don't agree with everything Francis Chan says or does, but I respect him. I respect him because in view of the things he teaches and believes, he walks what he talks Francis Chan lives in the Central California, around the San Francisco area. He uh, left the church he had been at to to start a church, kind of in a concept that he wanted to do. So he planted a church, and and they built this church. Francis Chan felt like God had spoke to his heart and said, "I never, I don't want you to ever make more than this much, X, which is a low, low, low yearly wage." You want to watch it? You can go on and see. I think it, I think it's thirty-six thousand dollars a year. You compare that with other churches of half the size in California with what the preachers are making in those places and it would be way lower. Very small wage in central California. So you're going to go and he's, that's all he's going to get. And so he does it. And the people say, come on, let us give you more. He said, no. God told me to do this. Shouldn't I obey what God has spoken to me? Well... His friends and his family would, and people around him would come to him and say, come on, you don't, you're not being serious about your family. You're not taking care of your kids. How do, you're not planning properly for their college. And you, in, in that wage, you're not going to be able to send them to school and you're not going to be able to do all these things. And we can afford to give you more. So just let us give you more. And he said, no, my trust is not in you. My trust is in obeying God. He called me to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm done talking about it. If God wants my kids in college, he will provide. He called me to this, I'll do it. He hasn't demanded it of any uh, anybody else. He just said this is what God's done to me. First year, though he felt like the Lord spoke to his heart and said, I want you to give away $50,000 this year. Now, he only makes 36000 But he said, well, I feel like God has called me to give away 50000 And, of course, he's thinking, well, it's crazy. I'm never going to be able to do it. But okay, so he set forward that next year to give away $50,000 between him and God. So anytime anything came in, somebody gave him a gift, somebody, somebody, you know, money just came in from a variety of different places for him, he gave it to God. And that year he gave away $50,000 and he was kind of blown away. It wasn't about how much he had for himself. It was about how much he could do for the Lord. The next year, God asked him to give away 100000 And the next year, he gave away 100000 the same way. And the third year, God asked him to give away a million. And about this time, any of you who know him may be aware, during this time, he wrote a book. And the book went huge. It was called Crazy Love. And Francis Chan signed over all the rights to that book. And he gave away a million dollars. He keeps God's word. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is the way that God calls everyone to keep his word. But what I am saying is, he lives what he believes. And the challenge that that presents to me is the same. Do I live what I believe? Folks, we don't have to get crazy. There are simple things in God's word, isn't there? How about husbands love your wives as Christ loved a church? Do you live it? Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as unto the Lord. Do you live it? We don't have to dig very far. For folks who aren't married, it doesn't take very long as we look through the pages of scripture to see similar promises, similar challenges to each of us. And the challenge is if I believe it, then like David, I'm not going to be perfect. But it's going to be the desire of my heart to please God is the primary desire of your heart to please God. Because that's key that's key Jesus said that you had to love him more than anybody else more than brother, sister, wife, children that the love for him would make all other loves pale in comparison is that the way we love God primary thing God asks of all of us right in Deuteronomy love the Lord your God with how much Oh, oh, <laughs> that's a lot, right? That's a lot. And before we excuse ourselves and say, well, it's not possible. Sure it is. God said David did it. God said David was a man after God's own heart. What did he, We just read it, right? That he followed him with all his heart who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, only to do what was right in my eyes. What did Jesus say when asked about the things he did? Didn't he say, I always speak the things my father tells me to speak? Didn't he say, I've always done the things my father gave me to do? Didn't he lay out for us that same example? That same example we see from him. So this is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us to say, hey, it's, it's time i think especially in our day and in our time i, I don't sometimes people say you know if america doesn't change she's going to be judged Whoa, america's judged we're in it we've been in it for years we're not awaiting judgment judgment is happening now it didn't just start a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago we've been in judgment for quite a while But the scripture is still clear from Solomon's time when he founded the temple. What did he say that we ought to do if we find ourselves off track? If my people who are called by my name. Now he's specifically speaking to the nation of Israel. But there's a title we go by here, isn't there? It's called Christian. What does that mean? Christ like followers of Christ, right? To me, that's his name. If they will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will repent and turn from their wicked way. And sometimes we think, oh, there's no way our nation's all screwed up and all those people got to repent. Oh, come on. When the two, when these two nations divide and go into captivity, the northern kingdom to Assyria, Assyria conquered by Babylon, then Babylon comes around and conquers the south, and they go into captivity, and God gives them the promise, his promise at that day when they're going into captivity and in chains, being drug off, is I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the promise God gives them while they're being chained up and taken into slavery. There's a young man about 16 years old who's taken in the first captivity, the first time Babylon comes. Babylon conquers Jerusalem, I want to say four times. It might be only three. But the first time he conquers them, he takes the best of the best home to Babylon. One of those guys has a name we should all know. His name's Daniel. And Daniel, reading the scriptures discovers not only why they're in captivity, but how long that captivity is going to be. And when he discovers the need for the nation is to repent, Daniel, of whom no sin is ever mentioned, repents. Is that not amazing? Let me ask you a question. If someone ever asked you, To apologize for something you're not guilty of. If your attitude is restraint for that, I would say that that attitude is not biblical. The biblical attitude in the scripture is not that I cling to my rights, but that I desire peace. What will make for peace? If... Apologizing will make for peace, I'll do it. You, if you haven't ever experienced that, stand in the foyer when Joe's here and he will bump into you. And when Joe bumps into you, he'll say sorry to you and then he'll ask you, will you say sorry to me? Now, if you decide to cling to your rights and think, I don't have to say sorry to this dumb kid. He bumped into me, I didn't bump into him. You are free. You have free will to say no. But stand by. There will be no peace. <laughs> Joe is going to ask again, scream, rant, rave, stomp off, slam doors. He may knock a little old lady who's totally innocent down because he's running to the office. All because I'm clinging to my rights. But scripturally, Jesus taught, we don't have any. So what, why cling to him? He laid his down. For me, I lay mine down. Daniel took that view and he repented for the nation. And God honored it. And brought the exiles out of Babylon and put them back in the land. Now, whether or not that is possible for our nation or not, I don't know. But it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility not to go and, and, and have a parade somewhere and tell everybody else how they need to repent. But that we would recognize it is our responsibility as God's people to repent for our nation. Whether I have ever been involved in any of the sins that, that, that God lists out as a problem for the nation or not is irrelevant. God's word calls us to repent. What would happen here, the prophet, if Jeroboam repents? I can tell you, because I can see it throughout scripture. If Jeroboam repents, God relents. That's how it works. If Jeroboam repents, God relents. And he establishes. And he moves forward. If there's no repentance... There's no relentance, and the judgment comes. Full force. So the judgment is laid out for them. The scripture says this, verse 9, But you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. God who raised him up, Jeroboam, cast him, turned his back on him. Read Psalm 22 sometime in your your devotion. It's a psalm that Jesus from the cross asks uh, his disciples to check out. If you don't remember when he did it, it's when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he proclaimed the opening phrase of Psalm 22. That's how a rabbi would teach. He would would give the opening phrase and his students would then find where that opening phrase was written and read it. Psalm 22 is a psalm that describes crucifixion. And some of the crucifixion, some of the descriptions there you'll recognize. The things that people said. They shoot out their lip toward me. The the shooting out of the lip, the turning the back, the gaping their mouths or gnashing their teeth, it's all the same. It's all language of rejection. It's all language of, I don't want you. I don't want what God has. I don't care about you. I don't want to follow you. And that's what Jeroboam had done. He did worse than David and Solomon. Well, Well, think about it. Because... David, the nation, was still united, right? And and Solomon, the nation, united, although it's declining, it's still united. And then when God gives Jeroboam 10, all of a sudden he turns all the people's backs away from God. They reject him and they move forward and that's what he's done. You've done done more than they all did. There's always going to be this steady progression. If you read Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 present... Mankind on a black canvas that shows the downward spiral of man. You cannot read Romans one, two, and three and think that we're somewhere at the beginning of the spiral. We are not. We're deep in the spiral. We're deep in the depths of the spiral of a of a nation and a world and a and a, and a system that has turned their back on God. And that's exactly where. The nation of Israel is here. You have turned to other gods. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. So the judgment that God brings in the, the first point in, in verse 9 is because of their idolatry. Now you and I would say today we're not really involved in idolatry. But we are. We worship the same gods they did. They w- worshipped the gods of sex. Money and power. It's no different today. We don't call them Astirith and Baal. We call them, you know, uh, uh, the American Dream. Sometimes, right? I mean, uh, well, what's every rock star in a rock star for? So that he can have money, sex, and power. Why well, does everybody climb the, the corporate ladder so often? What's their reason? Money, sex, and power. It's the. It's that call satan hasn't changed his tactics those are still his desires his pull his woo and so they followed them and turned their back rather than grabbing a hold of god with both hands and saying i'm gonna i'm gonna reject this earthly wisdom and i'm gonna cling to a heavenly wisdom i'm gonna cling to a god who says if i let go he'll keep me and i'm gonna put god i'm gonna put god to the test I'm going to put God to the test, just like he called me to in Malachi. I'm going to put God to the test that he will keep his promise. He will. I'm not going to test God by running and jumping off a cliff and say, catch me. I'm going to test God by holding to his promises. What did he say? What does he ask me to do? I'm not going to take God's word and Americanize it and say, well, I'm sure what God intended by this was that we would do that. I'm going to see what God says. And I'm going to believe that if I follow what God's word says, he'll do what he promises to do in my life. He doesn't say anything beyond the fact that he will give you. Well, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, you remember what, what they were to ask for? Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Not our weekly, monthly, yearly. Give us this day. Our daily bread. Give me what I need today. Let's get through one day at a time. We see those same kind of concepts. Well, God says, listen, you've built all these idols, so here's what's going to happen to you. First part of the judgment of four things that we're going to see. I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam As one takes away refuse until it is all gone. Yes, that word refuse is exactly what you think it is. It has been cleaned up so that it could be in the Bible. So nobody reads it and goes, what did that say? That it's going to be, they're going to be cast off, just like you would cast off refuse. And so the same concept is here. Every male is going to die. God has rejected Jeroboam. Jeroboam, however, rejected God. So, without God, what can we do? Jesus said, without me, you can do no thing. So for us to turn our back on God means for us to be utterly unsuccessful in whatever our endeavor may be. We may find worldly success, but certainly won't find scriptural success. That's the success that lasts. So every male is going to die. It's going to be cut off. Verse 11, the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. The birds of the air will eat whoever dies in the field. For the Lord has spoken. Now what he's saying is they're not going to be buried. There'll be no burial. Bodies are going to be left out in the open. And if a body is left out in the open, what happens to it? The animals eat it. So the judgment means that that they're going to die in battles and war in different ways. We'll see some of it as we go on through chapter 15 uh, and on through the scripture. But as we begin to see the destruction of Jeroboam, we're going to see exactly what God said is going to take place. Every male is going to die. Then he goes on in verse 12. Arise therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Abijah is going to die. Second thing. Every male, now Abijah was a male child, so it kind of follows suit that Abijah would die too. But Abijah is set apart by God. Abijah is set apart by God. Do you believe that God is a righteous judge? Do you believe that everything God does is righteous, even though we can't quite fathom how it all works? That's going to be an important concept for, for us as individuals to, to figure out in our minds. Listen to what Scripture says. And all Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one out of Jeroboam who will come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord god of israel abijah is god able to judge is god able is he is he willing he says everyone's going to die out in the open the dogs and the birds are going to eat their bodies but not abijah Abijah's going to be buried because god says there's something good in him toward me and we don't know how old Abijah is. Abijah could be a, a small child, unable yet to, to form uh, the, the words that would encourage you and I that he has faith, yet God sees into his life and acknowledges that there's something good in Abijah. Do you believe that God is a righteous judge? That he knows how to sort out the wicked from the just. That if 100,000 people die at once in a tidal wave, that God is able to sort out the righteous from the wicked. Do you believe it? Or do you just ask the questions, how could a living God allow something like that? What happens to Abijah if God lets him grow up? What happens to Abijah? Does he die like his brothers? In rejection of God? Or by God taking Abijah now? Does Abijah, will we see him in the kingdom? Will we see Abijah in that place, that's something good toward the Lord, is that salvation? I mean, I don't know, we don't have all the answers to the to all the questions, but what I do know is my God is able to judge between the righteous and the wicked. He is... He is the righteous judge. And that's what the point here. We, even though Abijah is going to die, God says there's something good in him. I, I share with people all the time. When we, we look at stories like in Acts chapter 5. We talk about Ananias and Sapphira. And we think that death is somehow the ultimate judgment. And now you're burning in hell. Well, just so you know, I and mean, I don't want to get too theologically abstract. There is no burning in hell yet. The lake of fire has not one person in it. Not one person is in the lake of fire, which is what I would say is the definition of the English word hell. If we define the English word hell by Hades or the grave, sure, there's lots of people in the grave. There's lots of people in an intermediate state awaiting judgment at the great white throne who ultimately will be in hell. But there is nobody in hell. Satan doesn't have a throne in hell. His demons are not there as the jail keepers of hell. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Scripture tells us that when a man dies who is a believer absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. So they are in his presence. What about the unbeliever? According to a story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, he goes to a a place in Abraham's bosom that had been divided into two, that now on one side is empty, and the other side is filled with those awaiting judgment. What do I know about those people who are in judgment? I know that they can see. I know that they can feel. I know that they can understand. Perhaps part of that judgment is to wait for a thousand years or however long it's going to be until their ultimate judgment comes. Think about when we were a child and our father said, I am going to whoop your butt, get up to your room, and I'll be there in a minute. A lot of times, (laughs) the torment was waiting for the judgment. In this case... There's a lot more torment than that. Because the judgment that comes is real. Hell's a real place. There's real things to feel. I want you to understand that at that moment, at the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection will take place, and the dead, the lost dead, will be resurrected into a body, perhaps just like the body that we will possess, is the, the, the resurrection and the righteousness, and that body is a body that keeps him alive forevermore, in a place that is the other absence of God. That's a place called hell. Not a place where Satan's in charge, but a place in the absence of all good things. a horrible, horrible, terrible, frightening concept. And it's real, and it's all over the pages of Scripture. All over. To die, the Apostle Paul said, is not the worst thing that can happen to you. To be judged, Paul said, do not fear men who can destroy the body, but fear God who can cast you into hell. That's real that's real Ananias and Sapphira I'm not convinced are lost eternally they did a sin unto death the scripture talks about a sin unto death that there are times and and, and occasions where the Lord will take someone right now because of the things that they're doing and he'll take them home it doesn't mean they've lost their salvation certainly they've lost reward certainly there's some some sort of loss resultant in it but ultimately it doesn't mean they're lost Abijah all the other children of, of Jeroboam They probably were taken and and are going to hell. But I would say Abijah, there's at least some concept on the page of Scripture that Abijah had some kind of a thing with God, some kind of a relationship. God saw it. Though his life was forfeit as a judgment upon his father, it doesn't mean that he spends eternity outside of the presence of God. Death is not the end. Death is just another birthing opportunity. It's our birthday in heaven. Or it's our birthday to judgment. And because it is such an incredibly dramatic difference between those two things, God gave His church one job go into all the world and make disciples of all men. He didn't call us to argue about eschatology. Although sometimes it's fun. Don't get me wrong. He didn't tell us to argue about non-essentials. He didn't tell us to fight over a bunch of other stuff, which sometimes is what we spend the majority of our time doing. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. Because in the time that we've been here studying the scriptures, countless people have passed into eternity without Christ. Remember I said there are some things that God asks us to do that aren't just for married people. The Great Commission is not the Great Suggestion. It's a Great Commission. It should be a central part of of our existence, of our desire to please God. He hasn't left it generic. I wish I knew how to please God. I wish I knew what to do for Him. No, He told us, here's what you do. Bring people to me. When people come to Jesus, do we know that they come broken? Do we we know that they don't come sanctified? That they're not perfect? That some of them still drink? That some of them still smoke? That some of them still struggle with a variety of things in their life? Do we understand? I hope we do. We need to bring them to a knowledge of him and let Jesus do the fixing. You and I aren't qualified. We're not qualified to fix. We're qualified to understand what God's word says. To rightly divide the word of truth and and apply that. And that's what we should be doing. Well, in verse 14 it says, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel. So who's going to establish the next king? Jeroboam's going to die and the people of Israel are going to think they're the ones who who put together the next king. But what does the scripture say? Who rose, who, who provided the next king? It says the Lord will. Raise up for himself a king over Israel. I'll be honest with you. In, in this last election that we had, I was pretty stoked about the opportunity maybe for some change in a different direction. I was kind of uneasy about the, some of the, 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 the stuff going on, but, but I, I, I knew who I didn't want. And then there was a storm. And then there was a storm on the east coast where people said, It's the biggest storm in recorded history. And the day that storm broke, I knew. The day that storm broke, I knew what was going to happen. It was as though God said, listen, I'm going to choose the king. You go ahead and do what you're responsible to do. But I'm going to choose the king. I'm going to choose a king that's going to bring people to their knees. I'm going to choose a king that's going to call cause people to call upon my name. Because that's so much more important than whether the economy turns around or whether we scale back and don't fall over the fiscal cliff or whatever crazy nonsense people are focused on. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters... Is the, the ability to snatch people out of the fires of hell and, and help them to, to enjoy an existence with Almighty God. And whatever has to happen for that to happen needs to happen. And in the meantime, we need to be his hands and feet, willing to do it. So the Lord says, I will raise up a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now? Yep, right now. Right now. For the Lord will strike Israel like a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. He will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. So, There's going to be no males. Abijah's going to die. There's going to be a new ruling dynasty. And Israel is going into exile. They're going to be pulled from the land. It's going to happen about 200 years later. But just so they know that what God said is going to happen, Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. And when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. God says just so you know I'm going to do what I said when you get home your son's going to die so you know remember the worst thing that happens is not that a son dies the worst thing that happens is that a mother and father spend eternity in hell because they would not repent that's the worst thing that happens the judgment comes and they buried him And all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war, how he reigned, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab his son reigned in his place. Now we're going to turn our focus for the last few moments to Rehoboam. Surely the southern kingdom's doing better than the northern kingdom, right? And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitis. Why are we told that? We're told that because it illustrates the fact that Solomon, his father... Had a love for foreign women. And Ammonitus was never to marry an Israelite. She was of the Canaanite uh, peoples. And they were to be utterly separated away from them. So that they would not turn their heart from the Lord God. Solomon was guilty. Of course he had, you know, whatever. 10,000 wives and 50 million concubines or something like that. Maybe a little less. He had too many. Any more than one, by the way, is too many. <laughs> so Rehoboam, here we have Rehoboam. Now listen, verse 22. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen to this. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed. More than all that their fathers had done. So we have the same phrasing used of both the northern and the southern kingdom. That Jeroboam was more evil than all those who had gone before him. And here Rehoboam and the nation of Judah follow suit. We were just reading a few weeks ago about David. David. And then the height of the Israeli empire under Solomon and the glory of the temple and God speaking to the people and all this stuff. And then within five years of Solomon's death, this is where we are. The decline or the destruction is always faster than the building. It's always easier to destroy, isn't it? Than to build. So we see the destruction of a nation... And it says, For they built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Do you understand what that means? What the scripture is saying is that they were everywhere. Not just here and there. Everywhere there were these pagan places where they could consummate uh, sexual relationships with people outside of the confines, of marriage for pleasure and worship of the God of sex, power, and money. That's what it was all about. And they were everywhere in Judah, every place, on every hill, under every tree. He's saying, man, everywhere you looked, everywhere you went, you could find these things. From this point forward, guys, from this point in, in first Kings, kings are going to be judged by the form of religion that they practice. We see three forms of religion as we go through what's going on in the nation of Israel. We see monotheistic Yahwehism. Uh, I'll call it that just so that we can um, appropriate that as, as uh, also speaking to us. Rather than monotheistic Judaism. Uh, the concept of serving and following one God. We have the, the, the synchristic system of Jeroboam which melds... Canaanite paganism together with Judaism. And then we have utter and total paganism, which is what happens in the southern kingdom. Those are the guys where the believers all went. That's where the tribe of Levi went to flee from all the garbage Jeroboam was doing. And what are they doing? They're doing even worse. They're not mixing. They're totally turning their back and going and entering into paganism. It says, and there were also perverted persons in the land. Perverted persons. The, the concept of the, the Kadesh is the, is the idea of both male and female prostitutes under the Canaanite pagan religious system that would be available for sexual pursuits uh, for anyone. Men, women, men, men, women, 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 whatever. Everything. So when it talks about that, the Hebrew word for it is kadesh. It means someone separated unto, set apart for, for perverted acts. And, and, and we have to understand and recognize that perverted acts, according to God's word, is any sexual immorality. Any sexual immorality. Not just the kind of sexual immorality that we think is okay. Any. That's the way God sees it. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem. Uh-oh. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. You remember all them gold shields that he put together? That he put into the, the hall of, uh, what was it? The hall of something. I just lost it. anyways... Back up a couple chapters, and you can read about it. That they were all within this hall, hundreds, hundreds, golden shields. They took it all. It's the hall of what? The trees. Hall of the trees. So they they have them in the hall of the trees. Well, they they what happened? Egypt didn't conquer Jerusalem and go take it. This is what happened, uh, according to history. There were 150 different places that Egypt attacked in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in order to get Egypt to go away, they tap out. And they say, we'll give you all the gold of the temple and all the gold of the palace. And so all the gold that King Solomon amassed, so much that nobody counted it, all went to Egypt. One fell swoop, whoosh, gone. Gone. Just so he could try to buy peace. So he could tap out. So he wouldn't have to, to find the, the ultimate conquering. And so Egypt is going to control the trade routes uh, around the southern kingdom. It says, then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. Is bronze the same thing as gold? If I said I'd give you a big old chunk of bronze, would you rather have that or a big old chunk of gold? You'd like them both? <laughs> The idea here is Rehoboam says, well, let me pick something that looks like gold. You know, bronze, if you clean it enough, it shines like gold. So we'll shine up this bronze and then nobody will notice. So it's not gold shields, it's bronze shields. He's just trying to hide the debauchery that has occurred in his life uh, by covering it up. You can't cover it up. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with those issues that are going on inside of your heart and inside of your life. Rehoboam didn't want to deal with them. So whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried him out of the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried uh, with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name, Naamah and Ammonitess, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place." So we'll take a look at another king. But when we look at this, I want you to think about something. Unlike David, he couldn't defeat his enemies. He had to buy them off. Unlike Solomon, he wasn't able to collect wisdom or wealth or prestige. Unlike both men, he was unable to keep the nation together. The decline of the monarchy coincides with the decline of the nation as a whole. The decline of the monarchy coincides with the decline of the nation as a whole. Same thing that we see taking place in the decline of the nation's spiritual commitment. So as we study this, a lot of times we look at this and we think, oh my gosh, why are we going through kings? Well, Because kings is an exact mirror representation of where we are today. Same kind of spiritual issues are going on. The same call from God to his people. Looking for a champion. Who will be his champion? Who will stand up and say, it's me, send me. I'll be your champion today. Every morning, day by day, moment by moment. We have the opportunity to show our spiritual commitment to God by simply keeping his word fulfilling those things, those simple things, simple to understand things that God gives to us in His Word. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank You for this time to come before You to study Your Word, to open up the pages of Scripture and to see what You have for us. Lord, in each kingdom, the North and the South, the same mistakes. In every nation around the world, England, France, Spain... Israel, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, Libya, the United States, it doesn't matter where we go, we have a spiritual decline, a spiritual rejection. We find ourselves in a place where we are flailing as a world, reaching out and looking with hope for someone to save. It's a scary place to be. As Jesus, you said... I came in my Father's name and they did not receive me. Another will come in his own name. Him they will receive. God, may we cling fast to your word. May we hold to your truth. And may we as your people say that I repent and I recommit. I want to be your champion today. I can't do nothing about the failures of the day other than take them to you and confess them and ask that you would forgive me for those failures and strengthen me for tomorrow's successes. And then when the sun comes up in the morning, I can declare I will be your champion today. And when I fail, stumble, and fall, I can remember the man after God's own heart did. He repented. He, he took responsibility. He said, Lord, forgive me. And he continued to move forward. So if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If they will repent and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear their cry from heaven. And I will heal their land. Lord I pray that we would as believers. Not only desire to see you God heal our land but that we would desire to see every man, woman, and child that we come in contact with recognize you as Lord and Savior. That we would be true witnesses. People who follow you with both hands. Clinging tight and allowing you to deliver. And then may we stand by and watch as the Spirit of God is poured out And we stand by and watch as you change our neighborhoods, as you change our families, as you change ourselves, as you change our friends, as you change the circumstances that we find ourselves in because we committed, because we followed, because we believed what you said. That we might see the kind of revivals we only read about in books. That we might experience our own Pentecost. That we might experience our own outpouring. Not like anybody else's, like what you want to do, Lord, by, like what you want to accomplish. Yes. That it's not our agenda. That it's not based on our experience. It's based on you. We earnestly desire, God, you to move in our time. But God, help us to see what holds it back is us. And not us generally. What holds it back is me, specifically. I need to grab a hold of both hands. I need to let go and hold on to God. Believe his promises and live a life like I believe what he said. And watch. And see. And taste. And know. For he is good. And he is able to do abundantly above and beyond all I can ask or imagine. And wow, that's so incredible so God move, so God work so God be glorified in us and may we heed the call not just now, not just tonight but tomorrow and every day afterward to allow you to do your perfect work we give you all the praise in Jesus name Amen